As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. If I asked, do you like the Naked Reflections podcast? It would be an open question. If I asked, what do you like about the Naked Reflections podcast? Well, I'd be nudging you in a positive direction. Nudge theory is our subject this week. It entered the political lexicon relatively recently, but the basic concept is as old as the hills. Here's the evolutionary biologist Randolph Ness speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast from Rosetta with love. Negative emotions such as fear and anger, which had survival value during our evolutionary history, may become maladaptive in modern society, where the threats are less immediate and less tangible. Positive emotions appear to have evolved in response to opportunities rather than threats, and they provide information that our environment is benign and that our goals and relationships are worth pursuing. How does nudge work when it's developed as a policy tool? Placing fresh fruit at eye level by the supermarket checkout would count as nudge, but banning junk food would not. Is nudge theory a euphemism for psychological manipulation, a sort of libertarian paternalism, or is it a practical way of improving things? Well, with me to discuss nudge theory are Dr. Beth Singler, Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at Homerton College, Cambridge, and a regular contributor to Naked Reflections, and Dr. David Halpin, Chief Executive of the Behavioural Insights Team. David has worked as the Chief Analyst at the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and is author of Inside the Nudge Unit. Welcome both. So when did nudge theory become mainstream? 
There was some discussion, of course, about choice architecture in a book in 2008. But David, tell us more about it. It really kind of picked off in a big way from, you mentioned the 2008 book, Nudge, which is an unexpected hit in many ways, built on an earlier series of papers called around libertarian paternalism, um, which was the original working title actually for the book, Nudge. But otherwise, it also then went to another level when Obama became president. He brought Cass Sunstein, one of the co-authors, into the White House. And then in 2010, in Downing Street, we set up the Behavioral Insights team and it started delivering results. And that clearly has had a big impact. Now it's estimated perhaps 300 such units across the world. And what impact did it have then under David Cameron? He was the one who set up the team with you, David, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Although, in fact, some of the work had begun before Cameron took over. And to set the context, I think, is it rather important? So you had an incoming centre-right government, which was generally looking for alternatives to hard regulation, as you say, like uh, mandating that you can't have junk food sold anymore, and looking for sort of softer alternatives. Um, and also a government which, frankly, was kind of broke, an 8% structural deficit, so looking for cheaper alternatives. And those two things created a very powerful enabling environment to at least give it a chance. And that's what we did. We set up this team actually with the sunset clause, two years to see if it would work or not, and set to work as to whether it would in fact be effective. And we took on some quite simple things. Can we get people to pay their tax on time? Help if you've got a structural deficit. Can we get people back to work faster? Can we get fines paid in, in the courtroom? And then gradually expanded onto lots of other areas as well. Uh, one of the other key details is that it also, you might call it a Trojan horse for it basically brought in a very strong form of empiricism to government, which is relatively alien, particularly the use of randomized controlled trials. The Revenue Service, HMRC, might send out literally millions of letters, but it would send out the same letter to everyone. So it was quite a radical idea that Ed will send you a different letter than we're going to send to Beth and see as to whether one of those leads you to be faster to pay your tax back. That was itself quite a significant and important innovation, I would say, in its own right. Beth, as an anthropologist, nudge theory must be as old as the hills. It's not a new thing, surely. No, absolutely. I think uh, we see lots of different variations of this idea under different terminology over the centuries that you can even go way, way back to how different stories and narratives and even parables shape conversations and lead people into particular behaviours. And that kind of forms a technology of its own. But now more contemporarily, we're talking about it in terms of nudges. It's a more recent term. And there's a question of whether those nudges should be directed in particular ways towards particular behaviours. The examples given of sort of paying tax on time speak to simplicity and a clarity that makes sense. But whether nudges should be enforced in different directions for more moral behaviour and more kind of communal behaviours that have wider spread changes for society and who gets to push those things in particular directions. There's lots of interesting questions raised by it. I mean, in some sense, we're all in the nudging game. Any parent is in the nudging game, right? Where they're trying to persuade their child, certainly their teenager, to do something. And they know there's a right or a wrong way of saying it. But what we can also say, I think, there are a lot of things which there's generally kind of agreement. You know, we kind of, no one enjoys paying their taxes, but you don't want to pay your neighbor's taxes. And if it turns out, for example, to make this a real example, we, we found adding a line saying, most people pay their taxes on time, or most people in your area pay their tax on time, you're one of the few to do so led to a 15% increase in the payment in the month following for late taxpayers with no further prompt. In fact, you, in this case, you're underestimating how moral your neighbours are, which is a, a general bias. We overestimate bad behaviour in other people and correcting that leading to that effect. So it's very few people, I think, have violent objections to that. In fact, it seems a pretty nice and sensible thing to do. But that doesn't mean to say there wouldn't be use cases where we think, mm, am I sure? 
Absolutely. So, I mean, from the acronym that the Nudge Unit uses, EAST, it should be easy, attractive, social and timely. That social aspect, the the effect of peer pressure. One of the questions I, I'm thinking around here is, you know, who gets to be the peers? So we see these kinds of influences, these nudges on communities, and it works at this large scale level, but also at much smaller scale levels in digital communities. Some of my research looks at that actually the question of who is presenting the message, what kind of access to epistemic capital they have, what kind of charismatic authority they have, and what kind of messaging they're doing. We see examples where nudging leads to behaviours that actually is against the public good. So sort of anti-mask conspiracism at the moment, or further back, I looked at anti-vaccination conspiracism. It's the same sort of influence. It's not a mystical process. It's been happening for centuries, as we say. But we're concerned, as you say, who's nudging the nudges, what, what direction those nudges go in. So it's interesting to see something that works kind of virally in the social media sphere also being implemented in policy as well. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, if you go back to the parenting example, it's often one of the most important thing a parent can do is try and influence who the peer group will be. The peer group does the heavy lifting. So you try and try and help your child choose good peers, right? Is that the role of government? A different question. But yes, it gets you into that that space in broad terms. What can be done about the, the those who are arguing against vaccinations, the anti-vaxxers, from a nudge point of view? If they're using nudge against nudge, is it my nudge is bigger than yours? <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. I think that we're seeing narratives being disseminated virally online about what is the truth and who has access to the truth. And if we can educate about the scientific basis of the actual uh, limits and abilities of vaccinations, that would push back against that level of conspiracism. But again, you know, the charismatic authority of particular individuals or groups of individuals who've, who've formed um, societies and collectives is difficult sometimes to push back against, uh, especially with that suspicious level towards government interference in those procedures and narratives, the suggestion that government is doing something secretive and bad with vaccines and the whole 5G conversation as well overlaps with that. So yeah, it's it's a difficult one to, to push back against online virality of ideas. But again, it's the same sort of process of nudging that we're seeing. There's something ironic, David, isn't there, about the fact that the work of the nudge unit may actually have provided the means for groups like anti-vaxxers to influence wider society. Um, and we've jumped into quite, of course, a complex and important issue. But don't forget, there's lots and lots of quite simple use cases, which are really important. So getting people back to work, you know, several decades, we had a system based, you know, perfectly sensible in its own right called active welfare. You know, you ask people to prove they're looking for work. And we ran a trial with the theory that instead of asking people to prove what they've done last week, it's asking what they're going to do next week. And this is based on a body of work around so-called implementation intention. If you encourage someone to think ahead and plan, you know, Ed, how are you going to go um, about finding that new job? Where, you know, what websites will you look at? What time of day will you do it? People become much more likely to do it. And in fact, we, sh- we found sure enough that people were significantly, basically two to four days faster on average back into work. And then if you're doing that for two and a half million people, it also is just nicer because it's not a sort of sanction and we don't trust you. Instead, we're actually trying to facilitate and help you. And one of the really interesting things we saw improvements in the mental health and well-being of the advisors in the job centres as well as the improved outcomes. They might seem mundane, but they're also really important use cases where there's a way of supporting or nurturing people or making a public service more effective. 
before we get into the sheer raw complexities of what's happening on social media and the arguments that are raging out there. So is it about the positive message, David? In other words, we had Gert Randhawa talking to us about the transplant policy and trying to increase the number of organ donations and changing the language in terms of organ donation and the person who receives it rather than the person who gives it and so on. So is there something about the positive message that stimulates us to do these things? It can be. I mean, human beings are really complicated. And what drives our behavior is a series of social factors and lots of kind of shortcuts and mental heuristics we use. And a lot of our behavior is relatively automatic. So there are often examples like the one you gave. And in fact, we did further work. I can tell you about it on organ donation that actually did find a very, very similar story around a positive message. So it's a beautiful example, actually, from Saudi Arabia from a year or two ago around women in the labor market, which Cass Sunstein has also talked about where if you ask men, what do you think other men think about their wives going to work? Well, most men think they frown on it, basically. And you say, well, what do you think? And then it turns out most, most men say, well, I'd be fine. I think it'd be great if my wife worked, she'd enjoy it and so on. When you then give the feedback to those individuals about what most people actually think, you find a very significant increase in the number of their wives who are then, in fact, working three months later. To understand the contours of human behavior, we can try and bring out the best in each other than the worst, I think is one way of thinking about it. Or a more prosaic way is we think about it as being the kind of WD-40 of public services. Can you take away the frictions and the barriers and the annoyances to make it all work better? I think it's very valuable to emphasize your point there that human behavior is messy and often irrational and we overestimate how rational we are. And I think one of the, the cautions I have about nudging or behavioral sciences in this direction is that you start with very good intentions of recognizing that perhaps humans are not homo economicus we're not econs as you put it in your book that we're not these purely rational units reducible to to quantitative measures but over time this this entire process itself becomes simplified to we can nudge people to do things it becomes more of a kind of a lever system if we push this thing down this comes up and i think the natural human tendency to reduce things to simpler and simpler systems might be problematic over time. And we have to keep kind of pushing back against that and saying, actually, it's a lot more complicated than we think it is. Well, there's a couple of things in there. I mean, I have a whole chapter in Inside the Nudge Unit about you know, how important it is who nudges the nudges. I think this is a totally key question. And the, one of the ways in which in the North American literature it's handled, where it's originated, is, is to really hold on to this idea that any nudge, to be a nudge, it has to be choice enabling, right? Or it shouldn't take away a choice. So the very famous example is around pensions, where we've seen on both sides of the Atlantic, if you change the default, so instead of having to opt into your pension and fill out a form, you opt out if you don't want to. And it is breathtakingly effective. 91% of people go with the default. There are more than 10 million extra people, for example, in the UK saving pensions as a result of that default change. I'd have thought that the profession of restoring old masterpieces would be a highly regulated business. Not so, it seems. Much more often than you think, dodgy restorers manage to persuade galleries and owners to let them loose on famous canvases, sometimes with disastrous results. And even cleaning old pictures and frescoes can be highly controversial. But when it comes to old manuscripts, there seems to be a much stricter protocol for preservation and restoration. The most ancient scrolls provide a big challenge because of their fragility. And here's Professor Tim Weiss of Cardiff University 
speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Will It Rain Tomorrow? Parchment is skin. It's dried skin that's been salted and limed and stretched and beaten and had hot water poured over it, trying to make a smooth writing surface. And so you know, I then got more and more involved with samples where the documents had effectively turned from the collagen into gelatin and actually glued themselves together. Thinking outside the box, Professor Weiss went to Dr. Graham Davis, a specialist in dental x-rays. Tim gave me a number of parchment samples and uh, we just rolled up a small piece, uh, put it in a container, put it in the x-ray system and sure enough we, we could see the ink on it. And it looked so good that when we sent it to Tim he thought we were just this was some kind of mock-up, and I had to say to him, no, this is actually reconstructed from X-ray views of it, and he was quite impressed then. So next time I need to decipher a Dead Sea Scroll, I'll take it along to my dentist. We're talking about restoration this week, the restoration of pictures and manuscripts, that is, not kings and queens. My guests are the art historian Dr. Ilaria Benocchi, who teaches at the University of Warwick and is a regular on Naked Reflections, and Dr. Suzanne Paul fellow St. Edmund's College, Cambridge, who is the keeper of manuscripts at the University Library, and before that was in charge of the extraordinary Parker Library at Corpus Christi College. Want to know where Nosy Parker comes from? You'll find out later. Suzanne, what sort of techniques have you used in conserving manuscripts in the University Library, and before that, in the Parker Library? So, I am a curator, a keeper of manuscripts, but I work very closely with a team of conservators who are highly skilled in the care and restoration of manuscripts. And the principles they operate on are really to prevent before they intervene, so that the the first priority of conservation is how can we prevent things from becoming damaged in the first place? The second principle when you do intervene is to try and only do things which are reversible. So to use materials that can easily be removed, to use adhesives which can be removed so that any work you do can be later removed if conservation practices and theories change. And looking after medieval manuscripts, you know, some of these books are over a thousand years old. The oldest book in the Parker Library is the 6th century Gospel of St. Augustine, which is believed to have been brought to England by St. Augustine of Canterbury when he came to convert the English in 597 AD. Now, it's an enormously precious book, but it's actually quite robust. A 1,500-year-old object that you can still turn the pages and still read. But it has been rebound. We put a new binding on it. And conservators will try to use the techniques of ancient times. They do research and they try to use the materials and techniques that would be appropriate to the book as it was originally created. And tell us before we move on, where does Nosy Parker come from? Isn't it to do with the Parker Library? Matthew Parker who was the founder and donor of the Parker Library. He was Archbishop of Canterbury in the reign of Elizabeth I. Yeah, he's believed to be known as Nosy Parker because he would go around, first of all, investigating the clergy to check that they were in line with the tenets of the Reformation and also what books they had that he might want for his own library. Well, that would be so lovely just to look around and decide what books you want for your own library. Um, Alaria, tell us about some of the controversies around restoring art. And there's a famous example, isn't there, the Sistine Chapel and the restoration there recently? 
Yes, indeed. So the Sistine Chapel has been restored, reworked over the centuries. At some point, famously, some underpants were added to the figures because they were considered too uh, naked. More recently, in the 80s and 90s, the Sistine Chapel was restored and funded by a Japanese TV corporation. There were several issues with that. So the cleaning, of course, brought to light the very bright, beautiful colours of Michelangelo's fresco. A big part of the controversy dealt with the idea of Michelangelo using a so-called secco technique, which means retouching the fresco with dry paint on top of the plaster. Uh, This is something that painters did sometimes because, of course, the entire point of the fresco and its durability is that it's done very quickly. And when the plaster dries up, it basically imprisons the collar into the wall. That's why it lasts for so long and the colours are so bright. What if Michelangelo, who is known as the master of pure fresco, wet fresco, had used dry retouchings on top of the paint? How do we know that it's his technique? Should we go, should we clean very deeply down to the wall and so to the wet fresco? Or should we assume the possibility that there was some dry fresco, dry retouching on top of it? So that was a big problem because it has to do with the myth of Michelangelo. Uh, Working, of course, in a wet fresco is very difficult, is very challenging. It's something that has some sort of heroic connotation in the way it is described, also by Renaissance sources, because you have to be quick. You are sort of challenged to battle against the wall, to run against time seem to respond to the myth of Michelangelo as a sort of titanic figure, heroic figure in painting. We don't know much sometimes about how painters actually work. Nowadays, the restoration is generally accepted. But of course, there were a lot of controversy. And they have to do with the idea that we have of painters of another time and how they worked, their myth, etc. So it's myth and reality, really? Yes, absolutely. Suzanne, do you have the same challenges with manuscripts? It's a very different experience with manuscripts. I think with art, you have that sense of the artist as the creator and trying to return to the original. I think for manuscripts, which have lived a life, have been altered, have been owned and written in, it's very different. We're looking now to preserve that whole evidence and that whole experience of that book throughout its life, rather than to get back to some kind of pristine original. And of course, that has really paid off now with the kind of scientific techniques that we can use. For example, Professor Matthew Collins and his team in the Department of Archaeology at Cambridge, he's the professor of paleoproteomics. So he's interested in ancient DNA, which of course is found in the parchment of the manuscripts, but also the sense of the microbiome of the book. So everything that the book has absorbed on its pages from the people that have handled it, all the bacteria, all the dirt and the stains, everything that's happened to that book, we can now investigate scientifically. And it tells us all sorts of stories about the life of that book and the society and the people who owned and used and created it. So it's a kind of biography of that book, really, from origins to present day. And and can you give us an example of what we've learned from that kind of research? So there are investigations going on looking at medical manuscripts from England in the 14th century, which was, of course, a time of the Black Death. So looking, can we identify evidence of the Black Death, of that kind of biology in the pages of a medical book? That investigation is still going on. 
I remember with the Pepys diary, there was some discussion because obviously he witnessed the plague, but also the fire of London and some of the pages themselves uh, seem to give evidence of burning and so on. Moving on to archaeology, you mentioned that, Suzanne. I, as a kid, uh, like many, I went to Crete on holiday and visited Knossos. And even at that time, I, I felt kind of, I don't know, disappointed by the vibrant colours. It, it was like a recreation of a almost Disneyland, really. And I don't know if either of you have been to Knossos, but what should we be doing with archaeological restoration? I think it's really interesting with classical statues, because classical statues would have been painted. So if you went to the temple of Apollo or the temple of Aphrodite, the statues would have been very brightly painted. But it looks almost gaudy to our eyes. We're used to classical statues being so perfectly white, but that's our sensibilities. This is absolutely true. The idea that marble statues and even temples, even the Parthenon used to be pigmented, used to be polychromed, would be white is something that started to emerge uh, during the Renaissance and then in the uh, 18th century with Finkelmann, the idea of whiteness as purity, the ideal form in white. Because, of course, if the body of the statue survives and can be excavated, the pigment doesn't. So it's a misinterpretation of the materials. Knossos is, a, is an interesting example Umberto Eco, the writer, famously wrote that it was at the conjunction of archaeology and falsification because, in a way, it was excavated by Arthur Evans and reconstructed, but many felt that he was pushing in a certain specific direction, while restoration and reconstruction should always be oriented to, to codify, to lock one single meaning of the archaeological remains, but to try to imply several meanings and several possible interpretations. So to force the hand is very risky. So perhaps that's the perception, Ed, you had when you went to Crete, that something was very nice finished colored product put in front of you, while the fascination perhaps of ruins and of artworks that are imperfect is that we can guess, we can try to imagine, and we can ask questions about them. So that's the main criticism, perhaps. Alongside that, of course, we've got the politicization of archaeology, and I, I suspect restoration as well, depending on the moment and the ideology and the political circumstance of the time. Famously, of course, we had the blowing up by ISIS of the twin Buddhas in Afghanistan. And in many conflict zones, um, thinking of the Middle East, for example, Israel and Palestine, the claims of who's there longer comes out in archaeological pressure on, on archaeology. Do you have the same sorts of pressures on restoration? Let's start with you, Laria, as an art historian. Are, are there ideological pressures in terms of the painting and the restoration? Yes, absolutely. It depends on the artwork. For instance, with the case of the Buddhas in Afghanistan, the Buddhas of Bamiyan, it's been a 20-year discussion over whether to restore them or not. UNESCO has decided not to do that. Some feel that it would be best to leave the niches empty to remind of what is in fact history, as history as perhaps the Buddhas themselves, so their destruction. So of course there is very frequently, particularly perhaps with religious artworks, a sort of political side to them. You have to think that restoration and reconstructions are operations of interpretation. We try to understand what went on, but sometimes we don't realise we have an agenda. We're trying to see something, we're trying to find out something. And so that's a risky business. Every interpretation can be riddled with our own contemporaneous concerns. So 
I, I believe there is absolutely a political side to it. How we look at history is always political. How we interpret it, what we make of it, especially when we intervene, because restoration is about doing something to ancient artworks. So the intervention becomes perhaps inherently political or politicised or subject to cultural scrutiny. A risky business, Suzanne? Definitely. As a medievalist, I've been following the different possibilities of the restoration of Notre Dame after the fire. And lots of architects have proposed all manner of different ways of restoring the roof, whether to try and do an identical rebuild or whether to put, you know, some kind of glass and metal tower on the cathedral. And it's such an icon of Paris, of the Middle Ages. It's both political concerns and commercial concerns. You know, the people that have donated money are looking to have a say in what is produced. But as Ilaria said, it's a 21st century interpretation, even if it becomes a, you know, stone by stone, log by log reconstruction of what was there originally. That is still a 21st century enterprise. And if I'm not mistaken, specifically for Notre Dame, the the spire, which was destroyed by the fire, was also, I think, a 19th century or a late 18th century edition. So the idea of what is the original version is much more complex than it may seem. We'd like to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, which includes episodes on Einstein, racism and many, many more, You can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.